So last week we started looking at this series on the three loves of Christmas. Today we're looking at Ezekiel chapter 36. Our sermon, this is the second of the two loves, loving the church, which is God's renewed family. So we're going to be looking at Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 16 to 35. It's printed in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you. It's also up here on the screen. So give ear now. This is God's word. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath on them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through their countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, when they came, they profaned my holy name wherever they came, in that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations." It's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. This is God's word. So as we look at this series this Christmas on the three loves of Christmas, we've, we've been looking at how Christmas teaches us to love Christ. We saw that last week. Today we're going to see how it teaches us to love the church. And then next week it teaches us to love the world. And these three loves tie directly into what we introduced last week, which is our discipleship plan. 
You've got an insert in your bulletin. I think we have a slide. There it is. We are developing this plan for discipleship here at Harbor. Um, discipleship really just means how to grow spiritually, how to become more a follower of Jesus, how to mature in your walk with God. We're doing this because as your pastor, I want you to have categories that are easy to remember so that you can know how you're doing. Okay, I just I want you to know what spiritual maturity is and how you can grow in it. Okay, and so as we've studied the Bible, as we've looked at all of that the Bible says about maturity, we've realized that it comes and it's defined under these three loves. If you have these three loves in your life, a love for Christ, a love for the church, and a love for the world, then you are mature. Then you are mature. And I also want you to see and to be able to understand what true love entails. Okay, it entails knowing, being, and doing. Okay, and so we're going to talk about all this again today. We're going to see more of it next week, and we're writing more materials. We're going to be distributing even more information about this and about how it works, and uh, that'll be coming in January. But for this Christmas season, we're seeing that Jesus came from heaven to earth so that we might have these three loves. Okay, and then today in Ezekiel 36, we're going to see how Christmas teaches us to love the church. And I think if we're honest, sometimes it's hard to love the church, isn't it? I mean, just think about it. When you ask other people about the church, if you think sometimes about the church, sometimes, you know, the good list comes up in your mind, but sometimes the bad list comes up, the things about the church that we're not real excited about. You know, how many people do you know who have said, look, I respect Jesus. I even be willing to follow Jesus, but it's Christians that I can't stand. You know, the story is told of a man who was discovered on a deserted island. Have you heard this story? You know, the rescue team was sent with a news crew, and as they approached the island, they saw this man waiting for him. He was exuberant. He was, he was elated. He was excited because he was rescued, and they interviewed him, and he said he'd been there for 15 years. And as they were listening to him talk, the reporter noticed that there were these structures, these three buildings that he had, little huts, not buildings, these huts that he had built, you know, off in the distance away from the shore. And they said, oh, what are those? And, and the, the man said, well, the one on the right is my house, and the one on the left is my church. And the reporter said, well, what's the one in the middle? Oh, that's the church I used to go to. I mean, isn't that it? You know, by himself on a desert island, and he got into an argument. You know, he couldn't agree, and so he started a new church and kicked out the other folks. And I mean, that's really kind of how it is sometimes as we look to seek to love the church, as we even think about loving the church. Maybe you've never even thought about that. Did you know? that God calls you to love his church, to love the church. We're going to look at that. In our passage in Ezekiel 36, Israel has been in trouble, right? And last week in Ezekiel 34, we saw that God took the leaders to task. He held them accountable for leading Israel astray, for teaching them the wrong things, for, for creating ruts of sin and disobedience, for creating really just a miserable life in the land for everybody. But today, he comes to the people. Today we find out, we're going to see our own responsibility in this. I mean, it's true, yes, that we are tempted sometimes with things that are outside of us. It's true that bad leadership leads us astray. But we give in, don't we? We do follow. We've got a choice in it, and we are responsible for it. Now, the good news is that in this passage, we see that although 
this was the end of the road for this generation of God's people, it's not the end of the story. Okay, and so we're going to see three things really about how Christmas solves the problem that happens in us and how it teaches us to love the church. So here are the three points we're going to be looking at today. First, we're going to see the motivation behind Christmas. Second, the work of Christmas. And then third, a love, the love of Christmas. So motivation behind Christmas, the work of Christmas, and the love of Christmas. First, the motivation behind Christmas. This is verses 16 to 23. Really, the big motivation that comes in this passage, it's most specifically in verses 21 to 23. God says he's going to do something for the sake of his name. If you look at verse 21, I had concern for my holy name. Verse 22, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Verse 23, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. So what we see here is that Christmas is motivated by God out of a concern to honor his name. Okay, now why? Well, it's because Israel had been profaning God's name. Okay, when they were in the land, we see by their actions and their deeds, they were bringing, I mean, they were profaning God's name. They were defiling God's reputation. God's name is his reputation. And so Israel in the land through murder says they shed blood and they committed idolatry in verses 16 to 20. They shed blood and then they turn their backs on their, their backs on God. And so what we see here is you think about this murder and then cutting yourself off, turning your back on the God of life. Right. What they did essentially was they filled the promised land with death. Right. They cut themselves off from the source of life, from God himself. And they went after their own ways. They worshipped other things. They worshipped the gods of sex, the god of money, the god of power. They worshipped the gods of grain. And and they didn't worship the true God, the God of life. And as they cut themselves off, the land became more and more full of death. I mean, it was so bad to the point where in this incredibly startling metaphor, verse 17, Israel's ways were like menstrual rags. Menstrual rags. We're talking about bloody feminine hygiene products. I mean, that's how God described the actions and the ways of his people. I mean, I tell you, right outside, as I walked in the theater, I was going to open the door, and right next to the door, there was a big heap of human excrement. I'm pretty sure it was human, because I don't think a dog, I mean, it was a big pot. I mean, and I'm walking in going, that's verse 17. Oh, my goodness. Illustration. So it's out there. I thought about picking it up, but I didn't. I didn't have a plastic bag. That's what I needed. Um, The point here, and the reason God brings us up and uses an image that's this stark is because God's reputation is on the line. Everything that his people do is a reflection on him. God puts his name on his people. They are his people. He is their God. And everything that they do reflects him. And it's a reflection on him. And so God cares. It's funny because so often the concern is raised, the criticism is raised that, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. You know, people that say they believe in Christ, they say they love him, but their lives don't look anything like the life of Jesus. 
And then people think, well, you know, that church is worthless. God must be worthless. And this passage says, you know what? God cares just as much as anybody else, and even more so, about hypocrisy in the church. Because it's a reflection on him. He knows. He actually knows better the the impact of our bad reputation and the stain that we put on his name. And so in the land, they profaned his name. But then the problem was, so God kicked them out. Verse 19 says, I judged them according to their deeds. They acted like the outsiders, and so I made them outsiders. I kicked them out. I brought them out of the land. I, I took them out of the holy land because they were not holy, and I scattered them among the nations. The problem was that Israel outside of the promised land also profanes God's name. Verse 20, it says, when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, and that the people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of the land. I mean, what that means is that God's name was the reason. It was because of God that these people left Egypt and went into the promised land. And the fact that they were out, if you were an outsider looking in to the rest of the nations, basically God couldn't keep them in there. God couldn't keep them in the promised land. And so the fact that they were outside of the promised land every day was like nails on a chalkboard for the Lord. It was like God, we talk about long-suffering, right? being patient, being long-suffering. God, every single day when he saw Israel outside of the nations, experiencing judgment that they deserved because of what they had done, every day God was, he was torn. Well, I mean, in a sense, I mean, I don't want to be irreverent, but God was saying, well, I'm damned if they're in and I'm damned if they're out. My name is being profane no matter what I do here. God's reputation is at stake in terms of the things that his people do. You know, when they do what's right, he's honored. And when, when his people are a blessing to other people, God gets glory because his people have his name. And then the opposite's true also. And, and, and God cares about this. And, and I guess what's interesting is that in this discussion, in this passage, when God keeps talking about his name, his name, his name, this might sound self-absorbed. You know, it could be that, and it seems like for us it would be self-absorbed, Right. If any, if you caught anybody talking like this, it'd be really hard for them to justify what they're doing. The difference when God does this, when God is concerned for his name and when God defends his reputation and when God makes sure that those people who have his name are honoring his name. That's actually the best thing for us. You know, it's not just the right thing to honor God's name, but it's the good thing. When we are concerned because other people cast a bad light on our name and we move to correct that, there are times when we're not doing that out of purity's sake. You know, we're, not, we're, we're doing it selfishly. We're doing it because we're concerned overly much or we're concerned that people have maybe a little too clean view of ourselves. And, uh, but when God does it, I mean, he is the source of life. He's the source of good. And so when God moves uh, for his name, he's actually caring for us. Does that make sense? And so, now, this motivation on God's part, it's not against his other motivations, right? He's got motivations to come and to save his people, to serve his people. And so this is an instance where there's times where we see different perspectives in Scripture, right? In chapter 34, it was was God's movement to love his people that motivated him. But here we see that he's also motivated for the glory of his name. And when we see these different perspectives, it doesn't mean they contradict, It just means that God is a real person. 
and God has multiple motivations for things. Okay, so this isn't a contradiction. This is just a, a bigger picture of who God is. And as I was thinking about this, really what this is, it's like a double grip situation. <laughs> okay, um, God is already committed to you if you're trusting in Jesus. God is committed to you, right? He has offered to be committed to everybody through the coming of Jesus. And so he's committed to you. He's promised to come and rescue you. He's promised to lead you and guide you personally himself in Jesus. And so he's got you in the palm of his hand, you know, from that perspective. At the same time, God is also committed, not just to you, but he's committed to his own name, right? He's committed to his own reputation. And so even above his love for us, right, even above his concern for us and our well-being, he's got a joint concern for his own reputation. And so it's like this double grip reality. Psalm, I read this this morning, Psalm 138, um, verse 2, says, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And that's interesting. And so this is really helpful, especially when we're in that place when we wonder why God would care about us. You know, you ever feel that way? You get to that point where maybe you've done that thing again and again and again, and you wonder, like, I think I've done, you know, last time maybe, but this time, why would God continue to care for me? Why would God continue to forgive me when you've betrayed him? You've betrayed someone else. I mean, it's helpful then because, let me just tell you something. Like, God is not only committed to you, okay? He's not only committed because of his love for you, but he is also committed to something that is far bigger than you. And that's his own word, his own name. Okay, and so, and there are times when you need to hear that God cares specifically for you. There's times where that's the truth that when it's nestled into your heart, makes your heart sing, right? It breathes back into flame, you know, the fire of your heart back toward God. But then there's times where you just don't believe it. And you're not going to believe it no matter who tells you or how many times they tell you. Because you think, well, no, 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 not after what I did. And it's in those moments that you need to know. It's in those moments when you don't think God cares about you, that you can remember, you know what, though? God cares about his name. And God has put his own reputation, he has put his name on me. And he's not going to go back on that. You have to realize that once Christmas happened, once God sent Jesus, once he came himself into the world to save us, he is, his salvation is now attached to his name. And he would no more deny his love for you than he could actually cause the death and resurrection of Jesus to not happen. His name is bound up. So it's not just how lovable you are and how much he cares for you. And oh, he, see, he, he looks at you and he knows you're trying really hard, even when you're not any of those things. You need to know that God's name is behind his commitment to you and he will not forget. He will not deny himself. And so that's the motivation for Christmas. Our second point is the work of Christmas. What God does, what the, what his work is going to, what work he promises to do. And we see first and foremost, it's the work of cleansing. Verse 25, verse 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. You might not have known this, but the purpose of Christmas 
is to give you a fresh start. If you've had 50 Christmases, if you've had four Christmases, if you've had 80 Christmases, if you've had even more than 80 Christmases, the purpose of Christmas, even if you've never gotten this until right now, maybe this will be the first Christmas that it really comes where you come to grips with this. The purpose of Christmas is to give you a fresh start. Jesus came so that we would be cleansed. Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared because he cleanses us from it. He cleanses us from your idols and your sins. And so whatever it is that takes the place in your life of God, right? Whatever is taking God's place, he frees you from it. And so this, incidentally, this is why we sprinkle or pour when we baptize, okay? This is one of the passages that talk about when God God says, in that day when I move, in that day when I make a new covenant with my people, in that day when I bring salvation, that's the day that Jesus talked about. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I mean, it's interesting. We're going to see how not only... Uh, does he sprinkle clean water, but he puts a new spirit in us, right? He puts his own spirit in us. This is the passage that Jesus is referring to in John chapter 3 when he's talking with Nicodemus. And he says, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus says, huh? (coughs) Translation, huh? And then Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the passage Jesus is referring to. This is the passage he's quoting in his mind. And so this is why when we baptize, we sprinkle clean water. We pour water over somebody because it's showing that the Holy Spirit is coming. The Holy Spirit comes when you believe in Jesus and baptism seals that reality to you. So that's why we sprinkle or pour. Now, the second piece of this work. So first, the work of Christmas is cleansing, but the second is creation creation, or maybe we could say recreation, right? Because look what he does. Look at verse 20, 26, right? I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is, how do I say this? So many of you believe in Jesus and you don't believe this verse is true about you. Just flat out. You don't believe this yet for whatever reason. Once you trust in Jesus, God actually takes out the heart of stone. That's the heart that doesn't love God, the heart that loves to do the wrong thing, the heart that is selfish, the heart that is self-centered. Everything about you that you hate, everything about you that everybody else hates, right? That all comes from the heart of stone. That's what the heart of stone produces. That's an old self. That's a dead heart. God says, in that day, I'm going to take out that heart. I'm going to take out your heart of stone and I'm going to replace it. I'm going to put in it a heart of flesh. I'm going to put in you a heart of flesh. So unresponsive, unyielding stone will be replaced by warm, living, responsive flesh. When you believe in Jesus, that happens to you. Do you know that? Have you experienced that? This is a truth that has literally changed everything about me over and over and over again over the last 15 years. I can't tell you how much 
this truth has, has, has meant to me, not because I could see it initially, but when I learned it, like I had to learn it first. You know, I'm talking about know, be, and do. I had to know it first for me personally. And then I began to think, well, wait a minute. I don't always see this new heart. In fact, sometimes I feel like I've got a heart of stone in me still. And yet the more I thought about it, the more I began to experience it. And I realized, wait a second, there are times when my heart is soft. There are times when my heart isn't so hard against people, against, against God. There are times when my heart doesn't want to do the things I used to do. God says, this is one of the works of God. This is one of the works of Christmas. Jesus came from heaven to earth to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Are you experiencing this? And again, for some of you, it may be that your whole heart feels hard or you feel like you don't see, maybe you're like Scrooge, right? <laughs> Comes to Christmas, it's bah humbug, right? You don't see a whole lot of softness in you. You feel very hardened at work, at home, community and relationships. You don't see a lot of soft flesh. You feel like you have a whole heart of stone. And then for others of you, maybe it's just this one part of your life where that hardness is still happening right? You feel like, well, I see that softness sometimes. When I'm at church, the softness comes out. But when I'm by myself or when I'm in this situation, my heart is as hard as a stone. I was thinking about this, you know, my shoulder. uh, I dislocated my shoulder, boy, it feels like four or five months ago. They put it back in and my whole arm was numb. And then, you know, more and more the feeling came back. My shoulder is now completely back 100%, which I'm thankful for. I've got pretty much all the motion and everything there's only one thing that still hasn't cut, kicked back in, and that's my forearm. Like, my forearm is still dead. You know, the muscle, I can't feel it. It's just I could pinch it, squeeze I could cut it up, and it, I wouldn't feel it. I mean, it's dead. And I was thinking about that going, that's sometimes, especially in the church, that's kind of how our hearts sometimes feel, right? Where you see God at work. You see that he's working in certain areas of your life, but there's that one area that's dead. There's that one area, and sometimes you're afraid to let God in, Sometimes you really wish he would come in and don't understand why he's not coming in. Um, but there's that one area where, you know, your heart is hard. And if that's you, if your whole heart is calcified, I mean, wherever you are, this word comes to you and says, in that day, I will give you a new heart. I will take out your heart of stone. And so once you trust in Jesus, that old heart comes out and God puts in a new heart. And you have to You've got to believe that. You actually have to commit to believing it, sometimes even before you experience it, in order for you to experience it. Okay, and so sometimes it means you saying to yourself, when I look at my life, I feel like I have a stony heart in this area. And if that's the case, you've got to say, okay, well, what would my life look like if my heart was soft? What would this area of my life look like if I had this new heart of flesh in me? And you think through it, okay, well, it would look like this. I would respond in this way, or I would act in this way, or I wouldn't do this, or, you know, three decisions before I get into this situation, I'm going to say no a lot earlier on so that I can, can, you know, I mean, it's it's preparing for the battle, not just in the battle, right? Um, As you think through that, as you line out, what would it look like for me if I had a new heart? Then you begin to walk in it. Sometimes walking by faith means saying to yourself, I'm going to live as though it's true. I don't see it. I don't feel it, but I'm going to live as though it's true. I mean, that, that's, that's faith, right? Come on, like, that's a definition of faith. And so sometimes our faith needs to grow, 
right? We all know you're supposed to believe in Jesus that he died for your sins. Well, did you know also that you're supposed to believe that he's given you a new heart? You're supposed to, that takes faith. That takes going into situations in your life going, you know what? By myself, I know I'll continue to act this way, but you know what? I'm not by myself anymore. My old heart is gone, says God, when I trust in him. I mean, it's glorious. You begin to experience this and think, all right, where else can I put this new heart? You know, what else? You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of how it works. You get excited about it. because, And it's interesting because so he puts in a new heart. He, he honestly, truly changes you. But then he puts in a new spirit, which sometimes heart and spirit, maybe two sides of the same coin, a spirit verse 27 or verse 26, it's like sort of the empowering influence. It's the life in something. And so God says, I'm putting a new spirit in you. He's saying, I'm going to put in a new empowering presence, a new life in you. But then you find out in verse 27, it's not just any new life. It's not just any empowering presence. It's his. It's God's own presence. Look at verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God puts his own spirit in you. This is what we call the Holy Spirit, right? In Acts chapter 2, and this is sort of the connection here. We're talking about baptism. Peter said in Acts 2, 38, we did this in in the confession. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins in the name of Jesus Christ. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you believe... I mean, it's kind of like whichever image is, is better for you or maybe both because some, some temptations in your life, you need the new heart illustration and other temptations in your life, you're going to need the God's own spirit you know, illustration. But that's what God is saying. God is creating you to be new people when you believe in him. And you have to believe it. You got to trust it because God says it. Don't trust me. Trust the word. Trust the verses in the Bible. Like this is why we got to read it because maybe you wouldn't have known that this was true about you if you hadn't read these verses. I mean, that's the joy. It's like when, when Psalm 119 says, um, what does he say? Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. Here's some wonderful things. I mean, these are wonderful things that actually change who we are from the inside, from the inside. And then we see why this work matches up with God's concern for his name. I mean, this is what's really exciting is that God's works to restore his name, to restore his reputation. And the way he does it is by making us so that we're not hypocrites, right? He doesn't just say, well, I'm just not going to have people in the world. I'm not going to have my people anymore. He says, no, 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 I'm going to cleanse them and I'm going to renew them. I'm going to create in them a new heart and put a new spirit in them so that they become new people. And when this happens to you, it affects everything, everything, everything everything. It affects everything. Christmas changes us in every way because Jesus came to cleanse us and to create in us new selves. And so this area with hypocrites, I mean, so there's, there's two keys to hypocritic, to, to not being a hypocrite. Okay. And one of the keys isn't <laughs> trying to become perfect. Okay. Cause actually it's the people who are claiming to be perfect. They're usually the hypocrites. Right, no, no. The two keys uh, to not being a hypocrite first is honesty. Okay, if you're honest about your struggles, if you're honest about where you fail, that keeps you from being a hypocrite, right? And when God's people, when the church gets a grip on that, says, you know what, we just need to be honest with people. We don't need to present as though we've got our act together. We don't need to present like everything is going well in our lives. We don't have to present like people don't 
get escorted out of the service or fall down in a service. I mean, you know, we don't have to act like everything is perfect. In fact, when we don't, when we're honest about what goes on in our lives, in our communities, when we're honest about both the good and the bad, I mean, that's when we actually have something to offer because that's when we're real. And so being honest keeps us from being hypocritical. But then second, experiencing this transformation, experiencing this new creation in us because God really will change us over time. And so, yeah, and, and I guess when we get to like, how does God do this? I mean, this is where the good news of the gospel comes in. How does God do this? Well, it happens in Jesus, right? Not just that he came because we needed more than a leader, right? We needed someone to lead and guide and direct us to tell us the way that we should go and then even to do it for us. But we needed somebody to actually die for us. And that's what Jesus does. He came, the myrrh, you know, gold, frankincense and myrrh from the song that we sang. It speaks of a life of mourning, a life of suffering and sorrow. And that is the, that's the mission that Jesus said yes to when he came. He said, yes, I will come. Yes, I will suffer. Yes, I will for you. Our cleansing comes from his death, right? We are cleansed because he gave his life for us. But this new heart, this new heart, it comes from Jesus. It's not just a new heart. It's Jesus's heart. God on the cross, in a sense, took the heart out of Jesus, crucified him, killed him, slain him for us. And he takes that heart, that righteous heart, that heart that loved God every single day of his life, that heart that never did what was wrong, that heart that always loved the good, that always, that, that, that was wise enough to discern the bad and to stay away from it. He took out that heart of Jesus from the cross. On the cross, he pulled out that heart and he plunges it in every single one of you. When you trust in Jesus, you don't just get his blood, but you get his heart that pumps his blood throughout your body. That's it. You have the heart of Jesus himself beating in you. I mean, it's by faith. It's not your literal heart. You know, it's a picture. It's a picture, but it's, it is true. Though it's not literal, it is true. And it takes faith to experience it. And when he does this work, he cleanses us, he creates us new. The third work of Christmas is community. It's community. On your own time, if you have a chance, go back through this passage and underline, circle, check, whatever, box, all the places where it says the word you, your, you, your, you, your, you, your, you, your, 33 times. There's 33 times when God says what he's going to do for you. Every single one of those yous is plural, but you're not allowed to put y'all in the Bible. Texas already has, you know, an arrogance about them. And if they did that, then they'd be off the charts. Every single time the word you is used in this passage, it's plural. God says, I'll sprinkle clean water on you all. It's in the Hebrew. It's plural in the Hebrew. There's a different word for you, singular, you, plural. So it's clear. It's not, I mean, this is actually there in the text. I'll sprinkle clean water on you all. I will give you all a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you all. And what does this mean? It means that, yeah, God saves us as individuals, but he saves us to be part of a community. He saves us to be part of his family. And that's what the church is. The church is the family of God. The church is what God gave his life for, right? The church is where God is trying to fix what's broken in the world. It starts with his people, the people who bear his name. The church is where God puts his name, right? The church is what Jesus paid for, what he died for. The church is what Jesus stands even today 
interceding with God on behalf of. And you have to understand this. You have to know this because if you don't, then you won't love the church the way Jesus himself does. It's not just about you and Jesus. It's about us and Jesus. I mean, we all need to have a relationship with him, but we all so desperately need each other. And if you don't believe that, that's something else that you need to know sometimes before you trust it. You have to commit to that. You need the people here. You might not know it. And what's more, they need you. They need you. In this last point, the love of Christmas, there's really just, it's no be and do. And in some ways, I want you to figure this out on your own. We don't have time to really go through it in depth. But you know, loving the church involves knowing the church. It involves being in relationship with the church. And then involves doing service for the church. And so you need to think through, do I love the church? Do I know the church the way Jesus does? Do I see it as my family? Do I see it as the body of Christ? Do I see the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do I see the church as, as the body of Christ, as the heavenly city? I mean, these are the images that the Bible gives us of the church. And you need to know what those things are so that you'll know how to be in relationship, right? I mean, in terms of being, you need to be in relationship with folks here. I mean, you just do. You have to because God needs that. If the church is going to bear the name of Christ responsibly, we need your influence, your gifts. We need your participation, and we need each other. Each one of you has gifts, strengths, talents that you bring to the table that this church needs if it's going to be all that God wants it to be. And we need to use those gifts in service to each other. And I've seen this happen. I've seen this church act like the church. I've seen this church care for people. I've seen this church instruct each other. I've seen the church have transforming relationships. And I've seen this church serving the members, serving the the community here. And what's amazing is that when we do that, it all spills out, right? It spills out. We end up filling each other's collective jug to the point of overflowing. And when it spills out, it touches the rest of the city. And that's exciting. But we'll talk about that next week. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Jesus, thank you for dying for the church. Thank you for loving the church, for being willing to identify with it, for being willing to call it your body, even your bride. Jesus, we want to be your family. We want, we want to have the kind of transforming relationships that exist so that we can grow to be more like you, so that we wouldn't profane your name but give honor to it, so that we would be able by our words, by our lives, to say, hallowed be your name, to see your name holy to see your name honored in our own hearts and even in the hearts of the people that are part of your church that though they might not even agree with us they'd be excited that we're here in the city because of the way that we love them and serve them renew each of our hearts god help each of us to experience this new heart from you and if there are folks here today lord that haven't yet put their faith in christ that need so much this new heart would you touch them would you speak to them and help them to pray and just confess, Lord, I'm, I'm a sinner. I've lived too long apart from you. I need your new heart. I need your presence in my life. Forgive me and help me to follow Jesus. Lord, draw many today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.